Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I was privileged to interview Fahd Nazar. Fahd is the spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. I have to be honest, folks, I am a fan of Saudi Arabia. I'm a fan of the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and what he's doing in terms of transforming Saudi Arabia with Vision 2030. Covered a lot of ground. I think you'll have much better insight into Saudi Arabia, the changes in the kingdom over the recent years. We speak about Iran, we speak about Yemen, we speak about Lebanon, we speak about the Giga projects, tourism opportunities. We touch on Khashoggi as well, uh, Israel, so many different things. I hope you find this interesting and exciting. Take a listen. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. It's a real pleasure for me to welcome Fahad Nazar to the show today. Fahad is the spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Fahad, welcome to The Diplomat on Newsweek. It's good to be with you, Jason. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. So I find that wherever I go, people are fascinated by Saudi Arabia. They don't know enough about it, they don't understand it, and they want to learn more. I want to start the discussion by talking about the changes in the kingdom over the recent years, in particular since, let's say, around 2017. Perhaps we could talk about the role of women in Saudi society and Saudi's openness and inclusiveness, the changes that have occurred over the past number of years. Right. So as you know, Saudi Arabia is undergoing a very exciting transformation that we call Vision 2030. The uh, vision was launched back in 2016 by His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and it's basically kind of a broad package of economic and social reforms. The main objective of the vision is to lessen our dependence on the energy sector, but it has also opened up so many other sectors of the economy that have not been developed to their full potential over the years. At the same time, I think that in many ways, the vision has opened up Saudi Arabia to the world, and it also in some ways opened up the world to Saudi Arabia. So in addition to opening all sorts of sectors to foreign investors, foreign companies, uh, we're also recruiting students, uh, talented students from all over the world to come and study in our educational institutions. We also issued tourist visas for the first time in 2019 so that people can come and see for themselves all the exciting changes. They can come and see the giga projects that we have launched. They can come and talk to our young men and women, see our World Heritage sites. We have five of those so far. And I think it makes a huge difference, you know, once people come and see reality on the ground. On the other hand, you know, I, as a spokesperson, obviously we cannot bring everybody to the kingdom, although we try to bring as many people as possible. But I really relish opportunities like uh, talking to good people like yourself, because I think that goes a long way towards just correcting uh, some of the misperceptions that 
unfortunately continue to linger about the kingdom. So you mentioned Vision 2030, and I was privileged to sit with His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to hear directly from him over the course of many, many hours the exciting plans that he has that he had back when I first heard of it and that he's now starting to implement. And what also was interesting to me is when I meet young Saudis in Saudi Arabia, they are terribly excited about the vision. In fact, I, I told a story at a speech I once gave about a friend who had a son who was in college in the U.S., but ended up back home in Saudi Arabia because of COVID. And he told me that he didn't even want to go back to the U.S. because he was so excited about what was happening on the ground with Vision 2030. He wanted to study in Saudi Arabia instead. What does the leadership in Saudi Arabia see now with the young people in terms of the, the this Vision 2030 and their hope for a future? Right. So we consider our predominantly young population to be our greatest asset. That is why over the years, we the bulk of our budget has gone towards education, uh, healthcare, and, and housing. So to make sure that our youth have every tool available at their disposal, not only to move this exciting phase of our transformation forward, but also to, frankly, to be able to compete with their peers around the world. Obviously, we live in an increasingly interconnected world. And I believe that Saudis this day, and, and I think this is, again, the, a credit to the vision. It's in some ways redefined what it means to be a Saudi. So not only is there an expectation for young Saudis to contribute positively, obviously, towards the advancement of uh, our development process in the kingdom, but Saudis everywhere in the world are doing a lot of good, no matter where they are. So as we speak, I think there's an estimated 200,000 Saudis studying across the world. And wherever they are, they are contributing to their um, local communities. They're doing that a lot and regularly here in the United States, for instance. So they're using a lot of their spare time to uh, give back to their local communities. They're volunteering at hospitals, school, senior homes. There's a couple of student-run organizations that actually have helped American communities recover from natural disasters. So this is the, the expectation now. The bar has been raised for young Saudis. And again, as I said, we are investing a lot of resources into not just sending them abroad to uh, on scholarships, but we've also invested a lot of resources into developing state-of-the-art schools uh, in the kingdom over the years. And as part of Vision 30, we've also really opened up all sorts of sectors, generating a lot of uh, jobs. So, uh, you know, we're working on uh, various tracks and the uh, vision is moving full speed full speed ahead. Every country has its challenges, and I think one of Saudi's challenges is the neighborhood in which it is situated is tricky. It's challenging. Uh, some would argue it has some dangerous neighbors. One of those neighbors is Iran. Uh, in my view, Iran poses a threat to the region, to Saudi, to the UAE, to our other friends and allies in the region, including Israel, and it's a threat to the United States. How does Saudi view Iran today? And and I want to, just before I let you answer that, I want to tell you a quick story that I've told before. Sure. My son and I were in Riyadh. Uh, we were flying to visit a friend in Jeddah, and we were on the plane about to take off, and we were asked to deplane because the Houthi terrorists, I know the U.S. removed that designation, I think, mistakenly, but the Houthi terrorists were shooting missiles at Riyadh, and it reminded me of the challenges Israel has to go through. Um, Iran uses its proxies to foment 
terrorism and extremism around the region. How does Saudi view it, and and what is Saudi able to do about it? So, uh, ultimately, Iran is our neighbor. It does have a great history and a great culture, and you know, potentially, you know, tremendous potential. Um, our hand has been extended to Iran in peace for for decades, really. However, I think that for us and our neighbors to be able to find a way forward with Iran, Iran does have to change course. As you know, for whatever reason, Iran has refused to abide and to adhere to the norms and conventions and laws of the international community for many years. Um, it has to course correct. And if it does that, we don't really see a reason why we cannot have good relations with it. And it's not just us. Obviously, as you know, our concerns about Iran's behavior has have not been Saudi concerns only, but they've been the concerns of the United States and much of the neighborhood for many years. So really, the ball is in Iran's court. If they change their behavior, you know, stop supporting militant non-state actors, stop interfering in the affairs of their neighbors, they could become potentially a productive member of the international community, but that decision is up to them. And if we talk about Yemen, you know, of course, I'm sure you would agree that while they're suffering in Yemen, um, we can't pretend that what's happening in Yemen is the cause of Saudi Arabia. And I know the Biden administration has made some statements that I thought were unhelpful and unsupportive of an important ally like Saudi Arabia. But in reality, Saudi Arabia is being attacked by the Houthis. Yet Saudi Arabia also is trying to help the people of Yemen. So, for example, and I rarely see this in the news, so I'd like to hear about it from you, the Saudi Development and Reconstruction Program for Yemen exists and is working on construction projects in Yemen to try to help people in Yemen. Can you tell us a little about that? So Saudi Arabia is really doing everything it can to restore peace and stability to Yemen. As you know and correctly said, Saudi Arabia didn't start this war. We really never wanted it. It was a war of necessity, not a war of choice. We are supporting the internationally recognized government of Yemen, which requested, formally requested our assistance uh, back in 2015. So our involvement has received the support of the international community in the form of a nearly unanimously passed UN Security Council resolution. Um, and we continue. We continue to support the international, internationally recognized government. At the same time, as you know very well, Jason, Saudi Arabia has also been the top provider of humanitarian aid to Yemen, going back certainly uh, over the course of this crisis. Uh, as of last accounting, we have provided $17 billion to Yemen in various forms of assistance. Uh, this has been in the form of assistance to the central bank assistance to internationally displaced people. We have been supporting this um, reconstruction and development program, as you correctly noted. We've begun to build, rebuild schools and hospitals, um, electricity generating uh, stations. So we are doing everything we can. We've put forward a comprehensive uh, peace proposal a few months ago. A and again, it is up to the Houthi militia to take up this initiative for, uh, you know, unfortunately they haven't. They have continued to be the main obstacle to peace and stability in Yemen. And I think this is not just Saudi Arabia's view. I think that 
this appears to be increasingly the view of the U.S. administration as well. I think the inter entire international community at this point realizes what the Houthis are. They are a, a militant, sectarian, frankly, very hateful uh, group that has brought death and misery to uh, Yemen. And they, as you correctly said, they have lobbed hundreds of uh, missiles and uh, drones against Saudi Arabia over the past five years. This is simply not a, uh, an acceptable scenario for us. We cannot have a non-state militant act, actor right across our border, um, you know, with weapons of mass destruction available at, this, at their disposal. So we're continuing to work with our partners, including the U.S., and hopefully we can restore peace and stability to Yemen in the near future. Yeah, I think um, one of the things my listeners should know, because it also doesn't get reported much, is at the same time that the Houthis are attacking Saudi Arabia, their slogans also include death to America, death to Israel. So uh, it sounds like we're all fighting a common enemy. And um, I think people need to learn a little bit more about Yemen and the trouble that it's causing. Well, not Yemen, but the, the Houthi terrorists are causing in the region, all triggered uh, essentially by Iran. Right. And, and just to add to that, I think that's an excellent point that you brought up, Jason. I, you know, some people tend to overlook these slogans. Frankly, we don't. You have to take people at their word. And again, to use these hateful, um, you know, abhorrent slogans, it, it says a lot about them, about their ideology. But they're also teaching this hateful ideology to children. That is, they unfortunately do run uh, schools across Yemen. And this is what they're teaching you know, thousands of young Yemeni children. They're also recruiting thousands of Yemeni children, throwing them on the front lines, getting, you know, putting them in harm's way. Uh, so they've really shown complete and callous disregard for the uh, well-being of not just the children, but Yemeni people in general. In the last couple of days, there was an NPR segment about Saudi Arabia. And the accusation in the segment was that Saudi Arabia is using its power and its wealth to conduct what they term sports washing. Um, they don't take into account the fact that Saudi is transforming its entire economy and society, and there are good reasons why you're investing in sport and in teams. They simply, I guess, take the view from the guests who are on the show that you have an ulterior motive, a bad motive for doing what you're doing in the fields of sport. Um, they did, to be fair to NPR, they did allow you to uh, to uh, mention you know your views on it, but I was very troubled by that NPR report. I think it was uh, extremely manipulative, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. So I find this notion of sports washing, frankly, to be very puzzling. As you know, and as I think I've already said, Saudi Arabia is a young nation. It has a predominantly young population. Seventy percent of our population is under the age of 30. And this very young population has longed for a better quality of life in the kingdom for decades. And this is why, as you said, Vision 2030 has created an entertainment uh, sector from the ground up. We created the tourism sector from the ground up. And we've also created the sports industry from scratch just over the past five years. So not only do these sectors provide leisurely activities and obviously improve the quality of life, but they've also generated thousands of jobs in the kingdom and have also provided dozens of business opportunities for foreign companies, including many American companies that, uh, that operate in this space. So the reality is that every reform measure that we have implemented, every initiative that we have announced, and every 
giga project that we have established has been for the sole purpose of meeting the needs of our people and advancing of our, of our interests. So this notion that these reforms are simply an attempt to improve the kingdom's image is really off the mark, I believe. Let's discuss a, a sensitive topic, the, the Khashoggi situation. So, of course, what happened there, it's horrific. We know that. And President Biden released the classified information where the CIA believed that it had a high degree of confidence um, in terms of what happened, which, by the way, a high degree of confidence is not a standard by which anyone in the United States of America would ever be convicted. So let's assume for a moment we don't actually know what happened. And I also want to point out that the crown prince on TV in an interview took responsibility as the leader of the country uh, for what happened in the sense that he acknowledged it was a horrific uh, situation. But I don't understand how people can use the Khashoggi affair every time when discussing Saudi Arabia. The reality is, and for anybody who understands how politics works, how diplomacy works, how international relations work. Saudi Arabia is a key ally of the United States. It's essential for the security of the Middle East, which means it's essential for the security and stability, not just of the United States, but but for large swaths of the world. And my view is you can't continue to bring up that conversation in every discussion about Saudi Arabia. It's not fair and it's not realistic. What's your thought on that? Right. So I do have to stress that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was a heinous crime. It was an egregious violation, not just of our laws, but also of our values. The people behind it were arrested, they were prosecuted, and they are doing long prison sentences. We have also undertaken concrete measures to make sure that this doesn't happen again um, in the shape of reforming our security apparatus. But as you correctly said, something this had never happened ever in the history of the kingdom. It is simply not the way that we resolve our differences. It is not the way that we do things. And we have made sure that it will never happen again. But as you correctly said, Jason, uh, it is, I think, unfortunate and frankly unfair for some people to try to use this you know, dark chapter in our history to define us. I don't think it's fair. It shouldn't define us because it is not who we are. And frankly, I believe that as a spokesman, spokesperson, not only do I have a professional obligation to correct that record, I believe that I have a moral obligation to make sure that this aberration, this incident, uh, you know, the likes of which we had never experienced before, does not define who we are as a people or as a nation, because it really isn't who we are. The U.S. and Saudi have had a long history of strong relationships. Um, I worked in the Trump administration, as you know, I think the relationship was extremely strong then, as it should have been. Um, I think under this administration, it remains to be seen uh, what will happen. But let's just uh, spend a few minutes to talk about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I believe it's important to the U.S. How important is that relationship to the kingdom? It's extremely important. As you correctly said, the Saudi-U.S. relations are longstanding. I believe that they have withstood the test of time. They are enduring, and they have endured for many good reasons. In many ways, they are multidimensional. There is a political, a military, a security, and an economic component to the relationship, but there's also an often overlooked people-to-people cultural component of their relationship. I think over the years, you know, U.S.-Saudi cooperation has 
benefited not only both nations, but it has also been good to the world. I mean, people seem to forget that Saudi and U.S. forces, military forces, have fought not just one, but two wars side by side. The first was obviously back in 1990 when we expelled the invading troops of Saddam Hussein from Iraq. And then again, more recently, in 2000, starting in 2014, when again, our troops fought side by side to expel the terrorist group known as ISIS from Iraq and Syria. So this is a mutually beneficial relationship that has continued to grow and to deepen and to strengthen going back 76 years at this point. And I think contrary to maybe popular perceptions that had continued to strengthen and to deepen under both administrations, uh, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Let's let's tackle a fun topic, the Giga projects, which you mentioned earlier. So I was able to hear about many of them directly from the Crown Prince. The descriptions are really sort of jaw-dropping. I know it's hard to pick a favorite, but if you, if I ask you to pick what is your favorite Giga project, what are you most excited about and why? Can you tell us about at least one of them? Sure. So I think Neom is probably my favorite. And for your listeners who don't who haven't heard, Neom is a a project that is being built in the northwest of Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea. And Neom has the potential to redefine urban living for the rest of the world, really not just for Saudi Arabia. It will be powered by 100% renewable energy. I think that in Neom, what we're doing is we are trying to show that people can live in complete harmony with nature. Interestingly enough, by employing the most advanced technology technologies available. So Neom, again, when it is completed, will be a hub for innovators and business leaders, advanced technologies, that it will have various sectors. It will include towns and cities and ports. It will have an economic zone, uh, research centers, uh, sports and entertainment, and tourism destinations, because it does lie, uh, large uh, chunks of it do lie on the Red Sea. So we're very excited about it. Uh, We have some very interesting, exciting projects that are already taking place uh, in Neom. So for one, the world's biggest green hydrogen plant is uh, already in development. And this is a partnership between an American and a Saudi uh, company that is already beginning to work on this new clean source of uh, energy. And uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So if I had to pick, it would be Neom. So I'm glad you mentioned Neom because uh, along the Red Sea, one of the countries among several that would have access to Neom would be the state of Israel. And of course, I understand the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a very, very strong supporter of the Palestinian people, the Palestinian cause. There's no question about that. They've been a major fund donor to the Palestinian cause over the years. But I believe that Saudi Arabia is one of those countries that I would describe as not yet a signer of the Abraham Accords that President Trump brought about uh, and the other courageous leaders who signed it. What do you think down the road? I know it's not going to happen today, and I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but what do you think down the road will happen between Israel and Saudi Arabia so that projects like Neom and and so many other things that are going on eventually can be um, uh, worked on together with countries like Israel? So, as you know, the uh, kingdom's position on the Israeli-Palestinian dispute has been consistent for many years. Uh, Of course, it was the late King Abdullah who introduced the Arab Peace Initiative back in 2002, 
at the Arab Peace Summit. The initiative was endorsed by all 21 members of the Arab League, and it does offer Israel normalization with all of these nations in return for a, a just and comprehensive peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians that is based on a two-state solution. So that offer is uh, still on the table. We are hopeful that Israelis and Palestinians do go back to the negotiating table to try to resolve this dispute once and for all, because we believe that once this core dispute is resolved, not only does it open and pave the way for Israel to have good relations with uh, you know dozens of countries around the region, but at the same time, there's an added bonus, an added benefit in the form of defanging a lot of the militant terrorist groups uh, like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Houthis, uh, and others that have been paying lip service and have been exploiting this conflict for decades, really, to recruit followers and to raise funds. So uh, it would be a win-win for so many countries around the region. And so, you know, we're hoping that uh, Israelis and Palestinians resolve the, this core dispute. And then really, once that happens, uh, the sky's the limit. And let's spend a moment or two talking about interfaith dialogue. So I had the privilege of meeting the head of the Muslim World League, Sheikh Alisa, back when I was at the White House. He had visited a Holocaust museum, the Holocaust Museum, I should say, and I found the conversation fascinating. I don't think people understand where Saudi Arabia is today in terms of interfaith dialogue. Can you spend a moment or two describing that? Sure. So His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has spoken very frankly about Saudi Arabia's position in the Islamic world. We believe that because of the fact that we are the birthplace of Islam and the custodian of its two holiest sites in Mecca and Medina, that we are uniquely positioned to lead the Muslim world, we have embraced this leadership position. And one of the things that we have done is to try to restore Islam to its core tenets, which we believe to be it is a faith that is based on peaceful coexistence, compassion for others, and moderation. One of the many initiatives that we have undertaken is promoting and supporting various interfaith uh, dialogue institutions. We supported an institution in uh, that was based in Vienna, Austria, for many years. We have supported also various um, events and conferences at the United Nations. Our leadership, when, on multiple occasions, uh, including King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, when they've traveled abroad, have met with leaders of other faiths very publicly. And I think that certainly should uh, make people aware that we are sending a very strong message, not just to the world, but to also Muslims around the world, that this is the right way uh, extending your hand in peace to followers of other faiths is the way to go. It is at the core of our understanding of Islam. So we do it every chance we get. We promote interfaith dialogue and understanding every chance we get. And this is what, incidentally what we teach our students, both our, at our school as well as at uh, our mosques across the kingdom. One of the things I think my listeners should know is I'm an observant Jew, and I've always felt comfortable and welcome in Saudi Arabia, and indeed really throughout the Muslim world, throughout the Middle East, wherever I travel, whether I have to find a place to pray, whether I have to find special food because I keep a kosher diet. Um, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and the Emirates now even has kosher restaurants, but there are so many places in the Middle East that we are now 
comfortable and welcome. So I think uh, people should keep that in mind. Things have indeed changed uh, dramatically. Um, we spoke about tourism earlier, and, and we touched on the Giga projects. And you mentioned that you now issue tourist visas. Uh, let's discuss a couple of the things that are happening in the tourism world. In particular, I read something recently about an area that I had not yet heard about or seen, Rijal, if I'm pronouncing that right, Rijal Alma, which was recently right. added to the UN World Tourism Organization's new list of best tur- tourism villages. What could people look forward to when they tour Saudi Arabia? Right, so I think in when we talk about creating this tourism sector from the ground up, Really, the credit should go to His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for realizing several years ago that Saudi Arabia does have the potential to become not just a regional, but potentially a global tourism destination. So we have what I believe to be some of the world's you know, most pristine beaches. We have amazing mountain trails. As you already mentioned, we have five different UNESCO World Heritage Sites, including Al-Ula, which is in the northwest of the kingdom al-ula was built by the same civilization that built petra in jordan i actually had the pleasure and the privilege of going to al-ula for the first time just a few weeks ago when i was in riyadh it really was uh, breathtaking and again it is just one of five different sites so i think that saudi arabia has a lot to offer people who do go to visit are usually pleasantly surprised by all the historic treasures that we have by the natural wonders that we have and i think and granted i'm a little biased when i say this but i also believe that we have a very warm and welcoming people who take pride in being gracious hosts so frankly jason i'm not surprised to hear you say that you've always been welcomed i think this is part of our value system and traditions in the kingdom and when we issued the tourist visas back in 2019 we are hoping for people from all over the world to come. And I indeed did see tourists, dozens of tourists from all over the world when I was at Al-Ula a couple of weeks ago. Once we get over COVID, and I hope that happens sooner rather than later, we fully expect that thousands of people will come and see the true Saudi Arabia for themselves. And I think, you know, I have no doubt that they will uh, leave with a predominantly favorable impression. Well, I haven't had the uh, luck yet to go to Al-Ula. Um, I've heard about it. But if it's anything like Petra, which is in Jordan, and I have been to with my family, Petra is just an incredible place. So I'm adding this uh, this one to my list as well. Uh, I look forward to visiting Al-Ula. Well, you have an open invitation, Jason. Anytime you're ready, please let me know. Thank you. Thank you. Let's discuss one other um, challenging situation in the Middle East, which is Lebanon. I did a couple of podcasts on Lebanon because I don't think Lebanon gets enough of the public attention. It has uh, an incredible population. It could be something incredible, but yet it is constantly struggling. And people don't seem to know either what to do with it or they're just not paying attention to it. What is Saudi's view on what's happening in Lebanon today? Um, Again, so Lebanon, as you correctly said, is an important country. It has a great people, tremendous potential. The kingdom did support Lebanon for many years, both politically and economically. As you know, the kingdom did play an instrumental role in ending Lebanon's 15-year civil war back in 1990. The agreement that ended the civil war was signed in Taif, and in fact, it's called the Taif Agreement. However, unfortunately, in recent years, the political elites have allowed this sectarian militant terrorist group known as Hezbollah 
to dominate the political scene, greatly weakening Lebanon's sovereignty and security in the process. And we're hoping that, again, they change course and they rein in Hezbollah because you cannot have this model of a state within a state has never worked well for any country. And so I think that is really the only way forward for Lebanon to enjoy peace and stability and to have better relations with its neighbors is to rein in Hezbollah, which has brought it nothing but, you know, death and pain and misery and destruction over the years. Last question. Um, Since I do believe that my listeners don't know enough about Saudi Arabia and want to learn more about Saudi Arabia, what's your message to my listeners about the kingdom that we maybe didn't cover yet in in the course of this interview? Well, I think that Saudi Arabia is a young country. It is undergoing a very exciting transformation. U.S.-Saudi relations are longstanding. I think our relationship has not only been mutually beneficial, I think it has been good for the region. I think it has been good for the world. Saudi Arabia, I think, does play a leadership role, a very constructive role on multiple fronts. I think we have played a very important and constructive role in promoting peace and stability in the region. We're certainly doing that in Yemen. Just as an example, I think Saudi Arabia has played a leadership role in the international community's campaign against terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and others. I think that the kingdom has also worked very closely with the United States to resolve some of the uh, crises uh, in the region, whether it's Yemen, Syria, uh, or elsewhere. So really, I want to leave your listeners with a simple message, uh, which is that if you have a chance, please, by all means, come to Saudi Arabia, visit and spend a few days, come and talk to our people, come and see some of our sites, see some of our giga projects, you know, taste our food, listen to our music, travel internally, and judge for yourself. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And um, hopefully people who come, and that has certainly been the case, and that is certainly the case of Americans that I've accompanied uh, over the past couple of months. I've had the pleasure of accompanying a number of American delegations. They always leave with a favorable impression, favorable impression, sorry. And um, again, to the credit of Americans, they always come in with an open mind and an open heart. And that can only you know, do good for for the future of the relationship. Well, Fahad, thank you so much. Since we're recording this interview on a Friday, I want to take the opportunity to wish you a Shabbat Shalom. And I also want to take the opportunity to wish you a happy Hanukkah. This is uh, part of the, this week is part of the holiday of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. So I wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a happy Hanukkah. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Jason. And I do want to take this opportunity to wish our American colleagues and uh, friends who are observing Hanukkah and soon uh, Christmas to have a blessed holidays. And again, uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. What a fascinating interview. We covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate Fahad being willing to cover so many of these topics, some of them exciting and fun, some of them more challenging. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it interesting. If you found it interesting and informative, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends and family and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, wherever your podcasts can be heard. We had some great guests in the past. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other ones that we've done before. If you haven't yet heard them, we have some exciting guests coming up 
in the future. And I will say one of my favorite parts of this particular interview with Fahad Nazar was my ability to wish him Shabbat Shalom and Happy Hanukkah and hearing him wish us all happy holidays, both Hanukkah and for those celebrating Christmas. Really, times have changed. We are living in amazing, amazing times. So until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.